I'm Joe Feeks, editor of Poultry Health Today, and with me is Dr. Guillermo Zavala. He is president of Avian Health International in Athens, Georgia. Great to have you here. Great to be here, Joe. I want to talk with you about real virus because you, your consulting business takes you not just through the U.S., but through Latin America, Europe, and Asia, and it seems like real virus is always changing. What are you seeing worldwide? It goes by region. Uh, certainly North America, in the last, uh, I would say, six to eight years, we've seen quite a bit of changes genetically that have been identified by different laboratories. Um, in other regions or countries, it's a little bit more difficult to assess the situation because sometimes of, because of the lack of um, suitable laboratories that can help industry to uh, determine exactly what's circulating in their farms or their companies. But for the most part, yeah, it is a, it is a changing target, if you will. Uh, the virus is changing on us, uh, probably as a result of immune pressure, probably as a result of other biological reasons. But um, we have certainly seen quite a bit of changes in how real virus is behaving from the clinical perspective and the economic perspective, and, uh, and certainly on the way that companies respond to the challenges from real virus in the field. Now, I'm told that there are probably five main real virus genotypes and that there's just a lot more diversity today than there was 20 years ago. Is that diversity real or do we just have better diagnostic tools? I think it's a, a little bit of both. I don't have any doubt in my mind that real virus continues to change on us. Uh, but at the same time, we have uh, diagnostic tools that are much more powerful than what we had 15, 20, 30 years ago. And because we have tools today that allow us to have much better resolution uh, to understand the molecular changes, then certainly we're going to find a lot more variation in those viruses. So, however, having said that, we do see challenges in the field that we didn't see 20 years ago and we have been using the same vaccines for a long period of time. So at some point, if we see that our regular programs are not really protecting exactly to the same level, then we have to do a few other things because the virus, in fact, is changing on us. But uh, it's a little bit of both, I would say. I know from talking with you in the past that uh, you focus a lot of your work on immunosuppression, and, and that kind of goes hand in hand with Rio, is that right? Uh, yes, it goes hand in hand with any infectious disease. Uh, uh, we've, we've talked in the past about the importance of protecting birds against immunosuppressive uh, agents such as Merrick's disease or chicken infectious anemia virus or infectious bursal disease. And I always tell people, uh, you can have real virus circulating in your farms and you may not have an economic or clinical problem but you start noticing it if you don't protect your birds against immunosuppressive, immunosuppressive disease which again can be caused by those infectious agents, but it, it can also be caused by stress or uh, suboptimal management practices or maybe mycotoxins in the feed, things of that nature. My next question is in two parts. I'll ask the positive one first. What are we doing right in terms of managing real virus? Well, one of the things that we do right is that, uh, particularly in areas like the United States, We've always been extremely, extremely aggressive in the way we vaccinate birds. Uh, we know that uh, rioviruses are not exactly very easy to eliminate from the environment just by cleaning, disinfection, downtime, 
uh, sanitation in general. We can reduce the concentration of those viruses in the field, but it is the vaccination programs that actually help us to maintain a good protection status on, at the breeder level and sometimes at the broiler level as well. Now, I would say that that's one of the most important things that we are doing correctly, that we don't let go just because we haven't had, we haven't seen a problem in eight years, for example, it doesn't mean that I'm gonna slow down or, or become softer in my approach to vaccinate breeders and sometimes broilers. I, I would say that that's one very important thing we do right. Good, and I'd like to come back to talk a little bit more about vaccination, but where's the biggest room for improvement? Or put another way, what are we doing wrong? Um, one of the biggest areas of possibility for improvement is to do more research. We don't have enough researchers doing research on real virus. And I think we need to understand the virus a little better. We need to understand the pathogenesis. We got a little comfortable with the fantastic work, work that was done many years ago uh, by people like Louis van der Heide and generated the first original strains for vaccines live and killed. And those did a fantastic job for decades. But I think because the success was such uh, we kind of forgot to continue working on Riovirus and we got excited about other things that are obviously very important. But uh, I think we need to do a little bit more research from the basic point of view and also from the applied point, point of view. That's an area of opportunity, I would say. Now, getting back to vaccination, uh, this seems to be one area of poultry medicine where autogenous vaccines and commercial vaccines complement each other very well. Um, would you agree with that? Uh, certainly, certainly. Uh, autogenous vaccines, for autogenous vaccines to be successful, useful, and economically productive for us, there's an essential requirement that has to be fulfilled first, and that is you have to do enough sampling in the field, you have to do enough work in the laboratory. Uh, in other words, you have to do enough epidemiological investigation of these problems to really get a sense of how big the problem is, what is the nature of the problem, what do I need to do, what vaccine candidates can I consider for the production of autogenous vaccines, for example. So it doesn't help very much to decide to use an autogenous vaccine based on one effort on diagnostics. You really have to have a good sense of what you have as representative rioviruses in your entire company. Uh, as much as you can, as much as is logically possible. And where do the commercial vaccines come into play? Commercial vaccines certainly have a, a, a very, very critical um, job. The fact that the viruses have changed uh, little by little uh, over the course of several decades doesn't mean that the original federally licensed vaccines are not useful anymore. They are really the foundation for any vaccination program with or without autogenous vaccines. So as long as you maintain a very solid vaccination program uh, based on the original vaccines, common vaccines, ordinary vaccines, uh, then the autogenous program should be a complement to that, but not a substitution of the uh, standard programs. And, and is it the primary goal to just stop the, the vertical transmission of rheovirus in, in the breeder flock? I wouldn't say it's the primary goal, it's the realistic goal, um, because when we hyperimmunize the breeders, 
obviously what we're looking for is to prevent vertical transmission and also to provide enough maternal antibody protection to help those young birds in the next generation to be protected for the first, uh, I would say, 18 to 24 days. Um, thereafter, they need to develop their own uh, active immunity, uh, and that can only be accomplished by exposure to viruses in the field and or by vaccinating the, uh, the broilers. Many times it's not necessary to do that, but certainly the foundation of protecting broilers is hyperimmunized. Vaccinate very uh, intensively the breeders so that you don't have to invest as many resources in the broilers. Other than performance losses, I mean, how do you know if your vaccine is, if your vaccine program is working? One of the first areas of impact that you need to be looking for and where the major losses are going to be detected is going to be at the broiler level. So what kinds of things can you look for at the broiler level to realize whether you have a problem or not have a problem, whether the vaccine program is working or not? So you have to constantly monitor the antibody production in broilers at commercialization age or processing age. Um, and once you have a, a, a standard baseline for your own reality, you can consider that as normal. Anything that goes away from that normal line uh, should prompt you to look more carefully into what might be the reason why you get more activity, for example, on antibody production against reovirus. So that's one thermometer, if you, if you will. The other one is going to be condemnations at the processing plant. Uh, one of the most important reasons for condemning broilers is going to be what inspectors call synovitis. And if you do have an increase in synovitis condemnations, you need to look into the possibility of reovirus as being uh, the culprit. Um, and then the next step or steps would involve, okay, what am I doing wrong with the breeders? Am I too lax with my vaccination program? Am I using not enough kill vaccines? or not enough live vaccines, or do I need to add an autogenous product? So it's a multi-pronged approach, but you have, uh, certainly you do have the tools by observation at the processing plant, by doing serology at commercialization age, and doing the laboratory work to determine what viruses you have circulating associated with those problems in the broilers. Are there any new tools on the horizon for diagnostics? Uh, yes and no, not specifically for reovirus, but the uh, research that needs to be done and that is started uh, being done uh, focuses into looking at non-traditional genetic regions of the genomes of these viruses. Uh, in other words, we're not happy anymore with characterizing one gene or two genes. We're looking at the entire genome of these viruses. That should help us to understand more about the uh, pathogenesis or the virulence of some of these viruses and it also should help us to understand more about the real significance of the variation between different strains in the field. So that is one tool or technique that is being applied for multiple pathogens, including reovirus. What have we learned about reovirus and its relationship with other diseases? Directly or indirectly, you know, every time you have reovirus problems in broilers, which is where the biggest impact is you need to think about two major areas of impact. One is going to be the skeletal system because it affects specifically the tendons uh, and the joints uh, and the joint sheaths uh, 
uh, of affected broilers, but it also affects birds by causing um, intestinal infections, which are more difficult to characterize, but uh, birds affected with significant rheovirus infection in the gastrointestinal tract are birds that are not going to be able to convert feed as well. They will express uh, uniformity problems. Uh, it would take lim longer to reach market age, uh, things of that nature. So intestinal problems, skeletal problems, those are the two areas that are very important for us to consider. And those intestinal problems, would they be bacterial? Uh, yeah, uh, your question was about what other uh, pathogens, yeah. Certainly, once you get damage to the intestinal mucosa, the intestinal tract, whether it's rheovirus alone or rheovirus with other agents, then you open the door for many types of complications, potential complications, certainly bacterial. Uh, we do know that rheoviruses in particular can cause infections in very young chickens, and particularly the uh, small intestine. Once you have a situation like that, you open the door for secondary bacterial infections or other viruses to participate as well. One final question, and I don't know if there's a short answer, but the U.S. poultry industry has moved to reduce antibiotics, in some cases eliminate them altogether. Uh, more than 50% of the broiler flocks are now antibiotic-free. Do they need to pay more attention to rheovirus if they're taking out the antibiotic because of the impact on, on intestinal health? I wouldn't say that rheovirus should be the first thing to come to mind, but I would like to answer that in much more general terms. You know, in the absence of um, antibiotics or reduced antibiotics or no use of antibiotics of medical importance, um, you just simply have to make, you have to be a lot more careful with everything you do, absolutely everything. You have to pay attention, you have to change your mind, you have to change the way you think. In the past, very much in the past, <laughs> we used to concentrate on the use of antibiotics or the use of drugs, and uh, we used to um, rely very much on uh, vaccines and medication in general. Then we moved to vaccines, medication, and biosecurity, for example. But now that we, without the use of antibiotics or growth-promoting antibiotics, it's a totally different game. You eliminate that, and then you have to rely a lot more than ever on prophylaxis. That includes biosecurity, vaccination at the breeder and broiler level, and it also uh, forces you to be better than ever on good management practices. If you're good in maintaining good litter quality, good ventilation, uh, a good environment for the birds, then you're less likely to have problems in the absence of antibiotics. I know that's not a short answer, but uh, you, it's very important to put together everything. It's not just vet medicine, it's not just nutrition, it's not just genetics, it's everything together more than ever because you don't have the aid of medicines. Okay.